Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to How to Date, a show about how to master the messy, complex, challenging and bizarre world of dating when you really didn't think you'd be back here again. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imber. And I'm your co-host, Monique Robin. So, Amantha, today I know we have a guest on the show that I wasn't available to interview with you. So, her name was Logan Yuri, and she is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach who I read her book a little while ago, How to Not Die Alone. And it was such a good book. It's really funny, but also very practical and based on science. And so, I was very keen to get her on the show. I probably sent her about 10 or 15 emails pestering her to be on the show. And she finally said yes. So I'm very excited to share that interview. Oh, looking forward to it. Yeah, there's. I feel like it's it's a really practical one. There's lots of different tips in there, like how people can use the apps in a more productive way, where the women should be making the first move, and just how we can make better decisions as to who we go on dates with. So I think that it will be a really practical one for listeners. So, Monique, how was your week in dating? Amantha, I'm still not dating. Tell me about you. There's probably a lot more going on there. Okay, there probably is. I'm actually, I'm going to share something that we talked about a lot because it happened a few months ago now and I'm fine talking about it now, but at the time I was very hurt. So, you remember earlier this year I met a guy and I was just head over heels for this guy. He was awesome. Let's call him... Mr. Perfect, because I thought he was. I thought, wow, this guy is perfect. I know perfect. who you're talking about. Yeah, this guy's perfect for me. And we just like sort of dove headfirst into a really intense month of seeing each other and not seeing anyone else. Yeah, and, and to be fair, you're not normally that kind of person. No. You're very measured and you're very considered in in how you approach these men so yes it was really strange to see you just plunge in yes yes so we so we saw each other for a month and then it ended really suddenly he uh, we caught up for coffee one day and he basically just said the spark's not there for him now and it's over and then that was that That is just so bizarre because I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, that was on the back of myriad messages along the lines of compliments, telling you how amazing you are and how he can't believe his luck. Yes, so much. And he was a really big future talker. He just would suggest all these things that we could do in the future, like going to Sydney to see Hamilton and things like that and was doing the future talking stuff really early on. So he was, it felt very, very mutual. But then obviously like after having that end, I was devastated and shocked. And since then, I feel like, you know, it's taken me a while to process that and go, 
okay, what have I learned from this experience? And I think there are a few really big things that I've got from it. And I feel like having now been dating for, I don't know, three or four months since all that happened, I feel like I'm definitely approaching dating differently and for the better. So one thing I am now very aware of is just how much I projected onto him. Like he had these great qualities, but it's like, how well can you really know someone after seeing them for a month? It's like you fill in the gaps when you don't have enough data in those early days. And if there's enough good things, then you've got this halo effect going on and you naturally fill in the gaps and just assume all this positivity and all this great stuff about the person. And now what I'm aware of is when I'm getting to know someone like on those earlier dates, I'm just trying to see them for who they are and just work with the data that I've got and not trying to jump ahead and extrapolate because I've just realized just how how unproductive and just, yeah, like psychologically messed up that can be in the context of dating. Like you're creating this person that doesn't exist. Actually, also you've learned, I reckon from this experience, is to not omit the data that you don't like. Definitely. I remember like, because we would talk very often about how things were going with Mr. Perfect. And there were a few things that I thought, oh, that's not great. But I just wouldn't tell you because I, and finally, maybe I felt like a bit of loyalty to him because I'm like, oh, if he's a keeper, I don't really, I I don't want to really want to reveal that because that's quite a personal thing. But equally, it's just so much easier to talk about all the good things and omit the bad things. And my therapist said that. He's like, you need to talk about the not so good things. Don't not talk about them because it helps ground you. Yeah. Um, And the other big thing that I found is just trying to remain detached from the outcome because I think I was really attached to the outcome, the idea of this being the person that I was going to spend you know, a significant chunk of time with a significant part of my life, you know, which sounds crazy because I'd only known him for a few weeks. It's okay. You can tell everyone that you (laughs) thought you were going to be together forever. (laughs) It's okay, Amanda. We won't judge you. This is a safe space. Oh, my God. I judge myself. Um, But now I approach dating because I've learned that that is really unhealthy to do, particularly with the limited data that you've got to work with. You can only know a person so well in a few weeks is that I'm more detached from the outcome. I feel like I'll go into dating now, even when I meet someone that has got a lot of really good qualities, that's like, well, they might turn out to be really good, but they might not. So I'm trying to be a little bit less emotionally invested. And I feel like those, all those things that I've learned from that, as devastating as that experience was I feel like is serving me really well since then with the guys that I have dated. I have noticed a big change but one thing I do want to point out just so that you know people see the full picture you have been a little bit open-minded not attached to the outcomes you're also through conscious effort allowing yourself to be vulnerable in case there is someone that can sweep you off your feet like you're not closed to the idea either. Yes definitely and I I now make a mental note, even if I really like someone, to talk about the things that I don't like because I find that that is very grounding and stops me projecting and idealising who the person is. Yeah, I love that. That's Mm. great. So that was not my week in dating. That was my weeks in dating several months ago, but there's some big lessons that I took out of what was a really hard experience. 
Our guest today is Logan Yuri. Logan is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach and the author of How to Not Die Alone. Previously, Logan was the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge, and she also ran Google's behavioral science team, the Irrational Lab. Let's head on over to our chat with Logan. Logan, welcome to How to Date. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as I was saying before we hit record, I loved your book so much, and I will be linking to that in the show notes, and we'll talk about Bit, um, a bit about some of the things that I learned in your book. And to start with, uh, I want to know what are the most important but underrated characteristics that we should be looking for in a partner? Yeah, this is a great question. And so working as a dating coach, working as a matchmaker, I know what people say that they're looking for. I know what people bring to me on a checklist and they bring things like must be six feet tall, must make a six-figure income. And they're very focused on super certain qualities. And what we know from the research, what we know from relationship science is that certain qualities matter more and less than we think for long-term relationship success. And so the first category matters less than we think. That includes things like attractiveness, because yes, you want to be attracted to your partner. But what we know is that looks fade and we get used to the looks of whoever we're with. And so looks and lust matter less than we think. Same goes for money. Obviously, having money is nice and you want to make above a certain amount per year so that you're not stressing about money all the time. But even if we get very wealthy, even if we win the lottery, people adapt to their circumstances and money matters less than people think. The same goes for similar personalities and for shared hobbies. Sometimes people say to me, I'm so extroverted. I'm the life of the party. I should have a girlfriend who's like me. Instead, I have a girlfriend who's more of a homebody. And what I say to them is, no, you are so much on your own. You're, you're a lot. You need somebody who compliments you, not somebody who's the exact same as you. And same thing with hobbies, right? You want somebody who gives you space to explore your hobbies, but if you love camping and they don't, that's fine. You don't have to have the same passions. Now, what about that category of matters more than people think? And based on my work, I have found that the research shows that these things are correlated with long-term relationship success, but people don't often seek them out. And one of the reasons for that is that it's harder to figure this out just from a dating profile or a first date. So this category includes loyalty, kindness, emotional stability, the ability to make hard decisions together, having a growth mindset. So seeing life as something that you can improve at and develop skills over time. And then finally, what's probably become the most important one to me, what side of you that person brings out. And so this is really about the fact that you might date somebody who is great on paper, has all the biographical data that you want, has a great resume. But if when you're with them, you feel de-energized, you feel anxious, you feel insecure, well, who cares what their resume says? It really matters what side of you they bring out. Now with something like emotional stability, how can you tell that from those early on dates? Are there any clues that we that we can get? Yes, absolutely. And so the first thing I'll say is that it's true that from somebody's dating app, you could tell something like looks, what they do for a living, some basic biographical data about them, but you could not likely tell kindness, loyalty, emotional stability. And so I'll just say, of course, I understand that these qualities are harder to assess, but in terms of looking for it on an early date, especially something like emotional stability, 
Look at how they react to small annoyances in their life. And so there's a beautiful quote from the Holocaust survivor and psychologist, Viktor Frankl. And what he says is, between action and reaction, there is a space. And so what he means is that when something happens to you, you get a choice. Do you decide to react, which is just immediately going with your gut and you know saying what's on your mind or being angry? Or do you respond? Do you actually take a moment, see the bigger picture and respond in a way that um, reflects more maturity and more emotional intelligence? And so let's say that you're on an early date with somebody and the waiter brings the wrong food. Do they react and say, this is the worst restaurant I've ever been at. Why do they always screw it up? Or do they say, you know what, this isn't exactly what I wanted, but it's fine. Or, you know, this isn't what I wanted, but I'm going to let the person know in a kind way that I'd really like the other item. And so it's, it's looking out for these small cues. When something happens that's not their preferred course of action, are they able to see the bigger picture take a step back and respond in a thoughtful way? Or are they so stubborn or hot-headed that just immediately they go into reaction mode? Now, with the qualities that you said people, I guess, overrate, like things like looks and financial success and things like that, they're the really easy things to tell from the dating apps, I feel like. So how can we, with everything that you've just said in mind, how can we make better decisions in those initial stages where we're on Bumble or Hinge or Tinder or whatever we're using, where we are just presented with very superficial information? Absolutely. And so that's one of the big, the big thoughts here. It's that if you go through dating apps and you say, anything that I want to know about somebody, I can get from their profile. I'm an expert at reading between the lines. I'm an expert at understanding that if somebody has a picture with a boat, then they must be wealthy. If somebody has a picture of them with their family, they must be family oriented. And you know what? There's just not as much information that we can get from these dating apps as we think. There's a really interesting term for this called relation shopping. And so we used to do something called relationshipping, which is the process of meeting somebody and getting into a relationship with them. But now a lot of people do relation shopping, which is shopping for somebody the way that you would shop for a purchase. It just doesn't work that way because people need to be experienced in order for you to understand them. And so the lesson isn't how, how to evaluate pictures more or how to know the secret message in a certain profile picture. The lesson is get to the date sooner because it's in the date that you can really see those things. What side of you they bring out? Do they seem kind? Um, do they have friends from different walks of life, which suggests that they're loyal? And so instead of focusing so much on reading between the lines on a profile, focus on getting to the date sooner. And so if someone like me and also my co-host Monique, we're, we're time poor, we've got kids and I think a lot of our listeners do as well and sometimes just nights or even days available for dates are few and far between. Are there things that we can tell say in a phone conversation so that when we get to the actual face-to-face date we're you know making a better decision as to how to get there? So there's certain things that I definitely think you can tell from a phone conversation. So one might just be how is your dynamic? How is the conversational tone? Do you like the sound of their voice? Do they make you laugh? Are there a lot of awkward silences or do you feel excited about them? And so some of it is just like when you're meeting a new friend, when you're meeting a new coworker, what sort of dynamic and chemistry do you have? 
Another thing, and this has been particularly true during the pandemic, and I know that things where you are are slightly different in terms of the world being open or closed, but let's say that you were talking to somebody and you were trying to figure out, are you going to socially distance when we meet up? Are you going to be wearing a mask? How have you been treating COVID safety? There are definitely things that you can tell from a phone conversation about somebody's values and somebody's way of life. And that is a good proxy for understanding who they are. What are some other questions that we can ask on an initial, let's call it a phone screener date? Well, I have one that's uh, been coming up in some of the workshops I've been doing, and I'd love to see for you and for your listeners if you feel like this is something that resonates with you. But do you know the expression, you know, somebody who has done the work? Yes, absolutely. Great. And so, yeah, that's that's something where people say, you know, I'm 45, I've been to therapy for years, I'm divorced, and I know who I am, I know what I want, and I want somebody who has done the work. I want somebody who is also self-aware, motivated into self-growth. And so what they don't want is somebody who probably should have gone to therapy years ago but hasn't done it, and they don't want to pull that person along with them. They want somebody who can keep up with them. And so what are some questions that you can ask someone to see if they've quote unquote done the work? And so one thing might be, what's the last great book you've read? What's something that you used to think was true, but is no longer true? What's something that you used to be bad at, but you've invested skills in? Just trying to get a sense of, is this the type of person that has a growth mindset? Is this the type of person that feels like they can invest in themselves? Is this the type of person who changes their thoughts over time, and really just investing in the fact that certain people basically are self-aware and are willing to grow and other people are much more stubborn. And so sort of triangulating that through certain questions that you can ask. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Now, uh, something I I've really taken to heart from reading your book is that you talk about defaulting to the assumption when you go on a first date that it will lead to a second date. And that was the exact opposite of how I was approaching first dates. And really the only first dates that led to second dates turned into short or medium term relationships for me. And so I went on a date a few days ago, Logan, with with a guy and he had a lot of the, the underrated characteristics, I think, in as much as I could tell in a few hours, but there wasn't that initial spark for me. But I took your advice and I've said yes to a second date, which I'm kind of, I must say, I'm not not looking forward to it, but I'm also mm-hmm. not really, really looking forward to it. And can you talk me through, if I was one of your clients, how would you be coaching me around this second date conundrum where there wasn't a spark, but I know the mm-hmm. sparks can grow? Yeah. Thanks for asking such a thoughtful question. And so the first thing I would say, if you were my client, is I would just explain to that person, let's imagine that they hadn't read my book. 
you have spent your life looking for the spark. You have likely spent your time saying, did I feel that initial attraction with somebody? Did I feel that pang of instant chemistry? And if the answer is yes, pursuing it. And if the answer is no, not pursuing it. But what if you consider a different world? What if you consider the possibility that you have let many great people go by because they're not initially charismatic? They're not necessarily the best looking. They're not necessarily sparky. But what if the person who's going to make you happiest long-term, the person who would be a great partner is somebody who takes a few dates to open up. And so it's completely reasonable to say, this was not the best first date I've had, or this is not the person who I can't stop thinking about. But what if you reframe it to say, I've done that. I've pursued the spark. I've gone after the person who makes me feel like I can't sleep at night. And now I'm going to try something different. And I'm going to say, based on my age, based on who I am, based on what I'm looking for, I want to find a reliable, kind, loyal partner. And I'm willing to go on several dates with people to give them space to open up, understanding that they may not all work out, but that many of the best people out there are people where you need to take that time to peel the layers of the onion and see what's underneath. So at what stage, Logan, do I call it? Like, let's just say I go on this second date, I'm still not feeling a spark. Do I persist or how do I know what to do? You know, I get this question a lot and I wish that there was a scientific answer that I could give you. I wish there was something that was like first date, who knows, go on the second date, but after the second date, you should be able to call it. Look, it doesn't exactly work like that. I think there are examples where you shouldn't use go on the second date if somebody is disrespectful, if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable. Of course, there's exceptions where you shouldn't go on the second date. And I think you're talking about the situation after the second or third date where you say, what do I do? And so I have these questions in the book called the post-date eight. These are questions that you ask yourself after a date to help you tune in to how you feel about somebody. And so this is a good sense of saying, okay, maybe I didn't feel a spark, but my body felt relaxed around them. I feel curious about who they are. I feel like they brought out a side of me where I felt secure and desired. And so I think just really tuning in to who they are, how you feel around them, what's going on for you will help you understand I'm getting more interested in them. I'm getting closer to a connection or similar to the first date. I just really didn't feel curious about them. And so it is very personal and some people need to make their own rules. But in general, if you're looking for the slow burn the person who is a great long-term partner who gets better over time, one of the best ways to find the slow burn and to avoid the intoxicating but nefarious spark is to make a rule of at least going on the second date. Mm. And i got to say, I love the post-date eight in terms of using those <laughs> questions you. to reflect about your date. I definitely highlighted those in the book. Now, with Spark, you talk in How Not to Die Alone, your book, around unhealthy things actually causing us to feel a spark. Can you talk about that. So my pattern when I was single is that I would meet a guy, we would have a flirtation, I would feel the spark, and then I would get into the mode of the chase. I would say, well, he's sort of interested in me, but he might not be interested in me. And let me convince him to be with me. And it was all about the pursuit. It was like this rom-com story of, let me show my value. Let me create the perfect date night. And this person will eventually fall in love with me. What ended up happening was that I was really going after the wrong people. And I was confusing 
anxiety, not knowing how somebody felt about me, not knowing if they would show up for our date with chemistry. And this is a very common thing that happens to people is that they feel like they're optimizing for this exciting feeling of butterflies. But so often those butterflies are just not knowing what's going on with the person. And so sometimes the spark happens because somebody's really hot, charismatic, attractive. Sometimes you think that there's a certain connection between you and that person. But what you're really experiencing is that they give the spark to everybody. They are just a particularly sparky person. And so the lesson here is to differentiate, is this that we have a connection or is it that I'm actually confusing anxiety for chemistry? And when you learn to break that loop and you learn to say, this guy isn't boring, he's just showing up when he says he will, you will be able to find a secure partner and build a great relationship with them. I personally think that is such useful advice. Um, And I guess like you you talk about almost the pursuit that you would go on and something I wonder about and Monique and I often talk about is what role should women be playing now in dating? Should we be making the first move? When do we take a step back and let the other person pursue us? What are your thoughts around this? You know, this is something that I've explored more since the book came out because people have asked me questions like this. And I was doing a podcast with some women in their early 20s and they were like, one thing that we noticed about your book is that you don't tell women to play games. You don't tell women to pretend to be one way for the first few dates. You don't have a rule about when to have sex. And I thought about it. I was like, you know what? Most of the advice in the book is not gendered. It's universal truths around here's what matters, here's how to be a good person, here's how to have integrity, here's how to find somebody with integrity. And besides a couple lines around women and fertility and the fact that some people might want to freeze their eggs, it's not very gendered. And that's because what I care about are decisions along the way to enter into a relationship, dating blind spots, what people are doing wrong that they don't realize. And so my my advice is really for everyone. And so Of course, there's a lot to be said around who should make the first move and how do you not come on too strong? But I would just say it's all about being authentic because if you play a game, eventually you're going to take off that mask, reveal the facade and show who you really are. And so if you can just start from the beginning of saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm looking for. Are you looking for the same thing? You're going to wind up in a relationship where you're on the same page. I think in general, playing games just leads to disappointment and misaligned priorities. Mm. Now, in your book, I love how practical you get around creating the ideal first date, like even mm-hmm. even down to how we should be sitting. Can you talk about <laughs> some of your guidelines for how people can create a, a great first date? Absolutely. And so one of the biggest issues that I see with dates is that they feel like job interviews. Two people sit across from each other and they say, where did you go to college? What did you study? Where do you live in the city? What do you want to be doing in five years? And it's it's an interrogation and it's an exchange of information. And it's not a focus on an experience and getting to know each other. And so my whole goal with these 10 tips to help people design better dates is to design dates that are fun, that are playful, that lead to connection, not dates that feel like job interviews. And so I won't get into all of them, but a few of my favorites are, first of all, the date doesn't just begin when you show up at the coffee shop or you go on a hike. The date begins hours before when you get into your pre-date mindset. And so this is what is the energy that you're bringing into the date? 
some people go into a date and have things like, this isn't going to work. The last 100 dates didn't work. So why would this one work? And some people go into the date and say, it just takes one person. It just takes one connection. And so really you want to cultivate this mindset of feeling sexual, feeling desirable, feeling flirty. A couple ways to do that are by designing a pre-date ritual. And so that might be something like taking a bath, lighting a candle, listening to a pump-up playlist, working out, calling your best friend, something that takes you out of work mode and puts you into the present mindset. Another thing that people often do wrong is that they focus on being interesting. They focus on telling the best stories and humble bragging about their fancy vacation. What we know from the research is it's much more important to be interested, to show someone why you're listening and why you find them fascinating, as opposed to being interesting. And so really focus on asking good questions, asking follow-up questions, and putting the attention on the other person. And then I'll give one more, which is ending on a high note. And so what we know from the research is that people disproportionately remember things based on the way that they end. And so even if the date has some ups and downs, you can really make a great impression by ending on a high note. That might mean giving somebody a meaningful compliment, going in for a good night kiss, ordering a great dessert. And by ending on a high note, you're much more likely to get them to say yes to a second date. I love that. And you write in the book about various cognitive biases that can get in the way of successful dating. Can you talk about, I guess, a few of the more problematic ones? Yeah. And so we talked uh, at the beginning about how people value certain things more than they should and certain things less than they should. And that has to do with the bias called the present bias. And this is our tendency to focus on the here and now. What feels good? What's pleasurable? What do I want versus what will I want in the future and what will be important? And so that's why I say to people, go for the life partner, not the prom date, because you want to focus on the future and finding a true partner, not just who's attractive and who you're interested in sleeping with now. Another bias that comes up is called the sunk cost fallacy. And this is the idea of throwing good money after bad. And so what happens is if you're in a relationship for five years and it's not working and you're unhappy and you feel de-energized and you feel depressed, you might end up staying in that relationship just because you say to yourself, well, I've already invested five years, I should keep going. And the lesson here is that just because you've invested time or money or resources into something doesn't mean you should continue to do that. And so oftentimes we need to say to ourselves, just because I've spent five years in this relationship doesn't mean I want to spend another five. And we really need to think about maybe the best way to get into a great relationship is by getting out of this mediocre one. Fantastic. Now, Logan, uh, Time's flown. I've just loved our chat. How can listeners that want to learn more about you and what you're doing find out about you? Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, the first thing people can do is check out my book. It's called How to Not Die Alone. People can follow me on Instagram at Twitter at Logan Yuri. And people can go to my website, loganyuri.com. I have a great quiz that helps you identify your dating tendency. And you can also sign up for my newsletter there and it comes out every Thursday and it's the best in research and tips and insights into dating and relationships. Amazing. Logan, thank you so much for your time and also your writing. I just think what you're doing is absolutely awesome. 
Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for thank you for all your kind words and thanks for the opportunity to connect with you and your listeners. So, Amantha, I know you were a big fan of Logan's. What was your biggest takeout from the interview? My biggest thing was about the second date. I feel like I go on a lot of first dates and really the only second dates I've been on have all turned into relationships. Like it's it's kind of a bit all or nothing for me. And I really like what Logan says around just default to assuming that you'll go on a second date. And I've tried doing that and I've actually got a second date with someone tomorrow who I didn't feel a spark with on the first date, but he was lovely and had lots of good qualities. So I, um, I'm already applying her advice. Oh, that's good. And I think it's nice to be open-minded because quite frankly, what we've been doing to date hasn't worked. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly hasn't. So I will be reporting back on how the, uh, the second date goes. That is it for today's show. If you have enjoyed How to Date, why not share it with other people that you think could benefit from some of the advice that we are offering. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love to get your feedback. Please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listened to this show from. And we will see you next time. See you soon. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.